Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Legacies of the War on Terror. In these episodes, we will be thinking through complex questions concerning how the War on Terror became the War of Terror for many negatively racialized communities over the past 21 years. Through expert knowledge and the recording of key events, we'll be speaking with academics and activists who are pushing back against the War on Terror's carceral logics. Executively produced by Shireen Fernandez. Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Legacies of the War on Terror. Today, me and Shireen are in the studio talking with Riz Sabir, who is a lecturer at John Moore's University in Criminology and who is author of The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam and the Security State. Riz, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Chantal and Shireen, for inviting me on the show. Now, the reason I invited Riz is because his book, The Suspect, is probably one of the best books I've read. Ever? This year, at least. Do you but, hear that, Riz? Yeah. <laughs> She's being too kind no, to I'm me. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm genuinely... And he knows this because I don't actually read many books. Um, <laughs> don't tell the academic world <laughs> that, Shereen! <laughs> no, I read bits of books. But this book had me gripped because of the way that it's written. It's a very personal reflection. So I don't know, Riz, maybe you want to start off by telling us about this phrase that you always use, that the personal is political. Actually, that's a really good place to start because when you are genuinely producing books as an academic, the assumption is that you will be operating according to this objective lens. Now, in this book, I center uh, my personal lived experience of being suspected uh, as a terrorist and investigated for seven days and held in solitary confinement. Uh, custody in 2008 for being in possession of a document titled the Al-Qaeda Training Manual. Of course, that's not its real title. The title was given uh, by the United States Department of Justice to this particular document in order to prosecute people and increase the likelihood that the juries in these particular prosecutions would find uh, the suspects guilty and convict them. Now, the document I downloaded from an American government website and I found myself subsequently being arrested, detained, investigated, released without charge and then subsequently surveilled by the security state and its relevant agencies and institutions. Now, when I started thinking about counterterrorism and writing about counterterrorism, I always kind of fell sucker to that idea of writing through an objective lens or framework. But the more I did, the more kind of claustrophobic and erased I felt as a result of it. So for me, the personal was political and the political was also personal at the same time. And I felt that trying to kind of sideline and push that to one side and, and make this story about counterterrorism policy and practice through this objective lens was actually really disingenuous and not really factoring in the the kind of uh, impact and effect that these areas of policy, doctrine and practice have on individuals and entire communities. So for me, the political and challenging the political, advocating for social justice, equality and anti-Islamophobia was absolutely central uh, to this particular book and centering that lived experience in order to show that we can only challenge these draconian unjust policies if we actually realize the harm that it causes to individuals on a very personal level 
and that we can only challenge the political by addressing and speaking through the personal narrative. And that's what I've tried to do in this particular book. Riz, that's such a profound response to how you came to be writing this book. Just for the purpose of the listeners as well, to really understand where it started, it'd be really good to sort of find out what you were doing at the time. Like, so you downloaded this document. You were a student at the time, weren't you? Yeah, the story actually doesn't start in 2008. Like a lot of uh, racialized Muslims, it starts on 9 11 mm. because 9 11 is the time in world history that things change so dramatically for Muslim communities where their identity uh, through nationalist banners like Pakistani, Bengali, Somali and so on and so forth, they all become replaced by this kind of master signifier of the Muslim. As a 17-year-old at the time that 9-11 happens, I developed this genuine curiosity for why Muslims are flying aircraft into these buildings and killing people in Europe and North America. So this curiosity emerges and the desire to understand this at university. So when I get to university and after I've had my one year of partying and, and all the rest of it, <laughs> I decide to, to study politics, right? Now, for me, politics is something that you always did outside of academic spaces because coming from a racialized working class community, it was always do a vocational subject in order to secure a job that would allow you, so to speak, upward mobility. So the idea of studying something in the social sciences wasn't really on my radar. But eventually, after the encouragement I received from a good friend of mine um, at university, after I failed my first year in management and multimedia technology, I started studying politics. And during that process of education, I started to learn about the world. And I also started to learn a lot more about how to potentially change the world through education. So this desire emerged to become an academic, right? And some may say, oh, it's very romantic and naive of you to assume that academia would lead to this kind of world revolutionary change. But as an 18, 19 year old young man, I believe that. Uh, and to some extent I still do, but that's where the curiosity emerged. And then everything that I did was to become an academic. So I would go kind of above and beyond my colleagues and my friends who were also university students because I was training to become an academic, a mm. scholar. So I would go for longer periods in the library. I would go deeper into my research and a desire to understand so I could essentially train myself and become an academic. So when I accessed this document, which was of course downloaded from an American government website, just FYI, um, that whole concept of accessing primary research literature was very much part and parcel of this goal of producing that golden nugget, making that original contribution to knowledge very early on. And it was only during that process of trying to go above and beyond being a, a good student to being an excellent student that I then found myself being arrested, detained, and investigated on the ground that I was actually using my education as a smokescreen to conceal and cover what my real objectives were, which were, of course, according to the police, terrorism. Point being that as a diligent, expeditious, hardworking Muslim student, it wasn't convincing enough to the state that I actually may just be a good student. There must be something more sinister that is worthy of investigation and questioning. And that's where this whole thing becomes very sinister. And 
really personally damaging and that's something that I've also documented in the book for the first time. I think it's really important as well for the listeners to understand that what happened to you, Riz, is pre-prevent becoming statutory, right? In university. Yeah. So that wasn't a requirement for lecturers or whatever to flag individuals up for extremism. This happened way before then and yet the consequences are so detrimental. Maybe you want to just think a little bit about that. How has prevent in universities for example change that or you know ha- has it made the conditions worse for muslim students that, that's actually a really excellent question and it's something that i oftentimes fail or forget to mention so 2008 literally it, let's just put this into historical context it's been three years since the london bombings it's been eight years seven years since 9 11. so the mood at the time the public mood is one of eternal vigilance there is this complete belief that everything and everyone is suspicious, especially if you come from a racialized Muslim community, because that's where the attention in the media, especially and within popular cultural references historically, but certainly after 9-11, is focused. There is no prevent strategy, but what the university does at the time, because of course the report is made by the management of the university, what the University of Nottingham does is it internalizes that otherness, that risk associated with Muslim communities, and it acts on that assumption. And what that assumption does is it completely throws out any sense of rationalism that is expected of public sector institutions like universities. So, for example, the guidance at the time issued by the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills, a government department responsible for universities, says If you find literature on your campus, this is in 2008, if you find literature on your campus, then these are the processes that you have to follow. Now, I know through my own investigation and my own correspondence with the university and uh, with the university via my local member of parliament, Vernon Coker, that no such risk assessment or analysis took place. And the reason was that the university management were convinced that we, uh, myself and my co-accused Hisham Yeza, were in possession of this document because we were using it for a nefarious, sinister terrorist motivation, when actually we weren't. And had they followed basic, commonsensical guidelines and uh, activities of a public sector institution, we would not have been confronted with this. What the prevent strategy has done is it's formalized that particular responsibility to investigate and refer people into British legislation. So now the university environment and other uh, public sector institutions have this duty, this legal duty under law to refer and report people, not necessarily to arrest them, but to guide some kind of state intervention should they be suspected of being future terrorists. So actually the situation in one respect has become a lot worse. And the reason is, that reporting and referring people who are considered to be future terrorists has become something that is now embedded. Back in 2008, if you were arrested or investigated, you had full media fanfare and attention and interest and curiosity because police arriving onto campus does that. Now, counterterrorism has become more insidious and thus more unaccountable, raising even more problematic issues for the effects on communities and those at the receiving end. You see how messed up that is, that document. Honestly, like, I'm just sat here 
just I don't want to do a kind of performative like shock like I don't want to be like this is awful this is shocking because like I don't want to take away from the fact of how much this politics and these state violences have informed so many people's lived experiences as being uh, as Muslims in this country like so it doesn't it feels like it acting shocked kind of does a disservice to how awful this has been for so many people so like I want to like listen with intent but also like get get to some of the the detail of how this is able to be consistently socially reproduced in how we racialize muslims in britain mm. but also show she reproduced amongst the general public mm. as well like do you know what i mean like from the state to the civic to the everyday and like how what you're talking about riz becomes common sense and mm. such a big part of like the ex- experiences for muslims in this country and has been for such a long time like i'm trying to constantly fight back against my just horror to try and like think okay what more can we tell the listeners about what is happening to try and make i don't know like do well, something to democratize how awful this stuff is and continues to be well chantelle i think this is a really important point that you've actually just touched upon right because the experience isn't as alien as it may sound especially for racialized communities and people right and you as a as a woman of color mm-hmm. know this better than anyone because <clears throat> these techniques and practices that are being used against muslim communities have all been trialed uh, and practiced against racialized communities in parts of South Asia, mm-hmm. in Africa, in South America, and all the other parts of the global South. That's where they've been trialed. They were used as laboratories. And then even in Europe, they were used against the anti-racism, CND, uh, anti-war uh, movement, mm-hmm. and also against civil rights struggle. Yeah. So all of these, you know, programs like Pro, the idea of using surveillance in order to not only monitor at risk and future threats, but also to disrupt and so dissent within a community so as to break that community. This has been trialed on black communities throughout North America and, and the UK as well. So all of these policies, they draw upon this rich history and heritage of state violence. And what's essentially happened with regards to Muslim communities is that by drawing on those uh, logics and histories, they've now perfected this targeting and also been able to draw upon the racist common sense assumptions that drive structures and institutions which have always viewed racialized communities as the other so the idea that somehow muslims are being targeted with this violence in a completely unprecedented or new way is not the case we have other communities that have been targeted which is one of the reasons why in the book i emphasize this that as though the Muslim community must be at the forefront of this this struggle against state violence and oppression, actually, we need to align ourselves, in the words of Angela Davis, all the way from Ferguson to Palestine and beyond, and come together with communities of struggle so we can learn from one another, we can find healing together, but also so we can resist and struggle together in solidarity. Mm. And it's only by uniting in solidarity that we can challenge power. I think that's I think that's really powerful, Riz. And um, anyone that listens to this show knows that's very much the politics that we employ and try to discuss um, the intricacies of how we make that possible within our everyday life. So I think, yeah, really great, really great um, to remind the listeners of that. But one thing I would say that is very, there is a very particularised 
politics and experience and phenomena surrounding Islamophobia in Britain that I think manages to seep into like personal political state like there's something like we can talk about like the differences between like Islamophobia anti-blackness and how they coalesce but there is something sort of post 9-11 that I think we've been talking about a little bit in this conversation that enables Islamophobia to again I'm not saying anything profound like people have written big books on this stuff but there is something very particular about Islamophobia that is able to seep into so many different parts of civic society the fact that it can change yes policies yes national policies domestic policies you know going to the airports we have to take our shoes off now yeah stuff like that right is based on you know so-called you know Islamic terrorism and so forth yeah so there is something very insidious about the way in which Islamophobia is characterised as a result of terrorism, right? Yeah. In September 2022, the Institute of Race Relations produced a report which basically declared that um, Muslims are are second-class citizens in the UK. And I think this is kind of the the, the kind of politics I'm trying to talk about here with regards to how we talk about these things. I think it's always important, as you say, Riz, to look at the familiarities, look at the commonalities. How do you build solidarities in the way that states treat racialised communities on a global scale? But if we get into the detail around the specifics, around how certain groups are racialised and treated, I do think there's things that we can uncover that are really important. But that's a really good point to focus on citizenship and the deprivation that's associated with it. Because I know that Riz, for example, the Shamima case, right? And the revelations yep. that came out that um, she was trafficked by somebody who was working as a double agent with you know, ISIS and... Canada do you see the logics behind that there is a exceptionalism perhaps would you say is that the right word to use an exceptional Muslim politics when it comes to citizenship deprivation well very quickly in response to the uh, exceptional uh, framing I would say the exception has become the norm or the rule so to speak and that's what makes this particular policy area really harrowing and distressing right that we don't even view the idea of integrating a policy within schools uh, which reports and refers people for being future criminals. Um, we don't really even batter an eyelid outside of the Muslim community. There's just this kind of widespread acceptance and you kind of go along with um, the general trend of what the government is telling you to do. So I would say the exception has become the norm. I mean, in terms of Islamophobia, I would say this, uh, Chantel, is that, look, by recognising our similarities is not to say that we are not all so different. I think recognizing our differences is a key part to appreciating our similarities. Yeah, nice. And also, you know, kind of just determining how we can learn and work with one another. So the idea that Islam Islamophobia is central to this, right? So Islamophobia for me isn't just expressing racism because it's not. Muslims can be black and white and everything in between. Right. So the the whole point of Islamophobia is that it operates on the level of culture and culture has now become the new way in which white supremacy expresses its hatred of the racialized other. In this particular case, the community that's racialized as Muslim. So culture is now used. Oh, it's the way they dress. Oh, it's the way they eat. Oh, it's the way they kill their, their meat and so on and so forth. So these things they they have a long precedented history 
And if you go back into history and you have a look all the way from the mid-1400s with the colonial conquests of Asia and Africa, you have this deep-seated suspicion and mistrust around Muslims. And the idea of Muslims being these kind of savage, violent individuals is oftentimes, as Edward Said talks about, you know, it's a concoction developed and constructed in the West rather than on the ground in reality. So recently, for example, I was reading uh, for a lecturer of mine on the history of this group known as the Assassins. Now, the Assassins, the Hashashin, as it was called in Arabic, was a group of assassins, murderers, who would go out, essentially mercenaries, and commit murder of political opponents and others. And this particular group develops this kind of mythical, dangerous uh, kind of stereotype not in northern Iran, which is where they emerge from, or parts of the Arab world, but actually in Europe. Uh, the uh, Crusaders who go back to Europe with this, uh, these stories of the assassins as being these dangerous individuals, and uh, travelers like Marco Polo, who go back to, to Venice and Italy and spread uh, particular ideas around this particular group, which reinforces pre-existing stereotypes and, and thoughts and discourses around Muslims. And what we find is throughout history is that these discourses have drawn upon one another in order to reinforce and perpetuate themselves. What we find today with Islamophobia and the targeting of culture, Islamic culture or anything resembling Islamic culture, even Sikhs, for example, oftentimes find themselves being attacked because they are constructed as Muslim. This draws on a long history and heritage of white supremacist colonial violence. This is not new. Again, it's not new. So recognizing this distinct history is absolutely vital that actually Muslims have a slightly different experience of colonial violence. But also at the same time, I think it's important to know that Islamophobia is not just an emergence or based on a history of Orientalism, but it's actually also an amalgamation of racism. So it's racism plus Orientalism equals Islamophobia. And this is the ideas of Professor Salman Sayyid from the University of Leeds that I'm drawing on. But that particular construction or merger between both of these things, what I'm essentially saying here is that there, there needs to be a recognition of the history of colonial white supremacist violence against Muslims that is slightly unique compared to other racialized communities who yeah. have also faced sustained violence historically. Yeah. But actually that violence that Muslims now face is based upon an amalgamation of Orientalism plus racism. So we b basically find both of the, those things intersecting in order to give us what we have today. And that is this racism that operates not on the grounds of color, but actually operates on the grounds of culture. And I think that's what makes it more acceptable within common sense assumptions, because most people think, ah, if you're not being racist to someone based on their skin color, then somehow you cannot be racist. In the same way as saying basically that race is only determined by skin color or melanin count, right? But actually racism can be applied to culture because it's about hierarchies of power and pre prejudice. So both of those things are at play in Islamophobia. So I think recognizing the distinct history of Islamophobia is not to take away from the, the, the racialization of Muslims and how they've been targeted by these violent policies and structures, but I think is also to learn how all of these different levels of violence intersect 
with one another and allow people to essentially have their citizenship revoked or to be constructed like the Institute of Race Relations has just shown in their research as second-class citizens, where essentially people like myself are now living in constant fear and anxiety that if they end up in holiday somewhere, that they might have their citizenship revoked on national security ground and never be able to return home to challenge and contest those allegations. But again, that's not just Muslims. If you look at Windrush and you look at that generation who were also deported, you can see that that same logic permeates the corridors of power when it comes down to the governance of racialized communities. So black people, brown people, all different forms of non-white people and Muslims are essentially second-class citizens and can be targeted by the state without any recourse to justice or accountability. And I think that's what the united struggle should be about, bringing all of these communities together, irrespective of how that violence treats us differently. So you bring up such a good example of like Windrush and then also now what we're seeing with the deprivation of like Shamima Begum, those who travel to Syria and so forth. And I guess what scares people when it comes to solidarity is the label of terrorism, right? And the label of national security. Shamima was stripped of her citizenship because of national security. Um, Tox, for example, who was a health, uh, an aid worker in Syria, stripped of his nationality because of national security concerns, which strikes a very different tone to what happened with Windrush, right? Um, that they weren't uh, national security concerns per se. But would you say that, um, you know, one becomes more acceptable than the other? Of course, deprivation shouldn't exist at all. But do you think that there's ever a case yeah. in which one group becomes a... Um, sort of accepted. Yeah, yeah, I, I see the point you're trying to make, yeah. I think there was definitely more criticism of uh, the government and the Home Secretary at the time when the Windrush uh, scandal happened, right? And I think the reason for that was is that particular policy area was based upon this historically precedented colour racism, right? Racism based on operating on colour, whereas when the terrorism label is applied, because it's very, and you know, as a society, we've moved into the post-racial, right? Where we're no longer now racist towards people of color. We're beyond that. So there was this outrage that, oh, hang on a minute, why are you targeting people from um, this part of the world, the West Indies, um, or and, and it's essentially tying into this color line, this color discrimination racism. Whereas when you target uh, Toki Tox Sharif, Let's use proper names here yeah. so people can Google them. Yeah. Uh, and Shamima <laughs> Begum, for example, you essentially are tying into that modern cultural racism, which is now acceptable mm. uh, and has passed the dinner test, uh, dinner table test. So that allows the state to get away with a lot more than it would um, uh, when, when it's operating its violence on racialized college lines. That's not to say that the people who were sent off to Windrush didn't still feel and experience all of those um, anxieties and uh, um, uh, pains that they have to now live with forever. Outcome is oftentimes the same. They're not allowed back into the UK or they have to challenge those through the courts. So oftentimes the effect is the same. The way it operates is different. I really it like yeah. I think what what you tapped into there is what I was trying to talk about earlier is as you said the effect and the outcome is usually the same like mm. let's be real like 
people that um, exp- uh, people that experience violence, the the violence of the home, the home office by the Windrush generation. People have died, like people haven't received compensation. Da 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 da. But then, when if we look at what happened with Shamima and we look at yeah, the application of the terrorism label, I like the phrase that you said: it passes the dinner table test you're able to latch onto certain cultures and certain forms of respectability which means that your quote-unquote everyday person will be like well Shamima deserves to have her citizenship revoked whereas like when you when you tap into the the elderly um Wimrush generation um elderly Wimrush generation individual that's less likely to pass a dinner dinner table test because there's a notion of respectability oh they've they've worked here they've been here for a long time like again like the effect and the outcome is still the same like just because it passes the dinner dinner table test doesn't mean that they're going to get more care or there's going to be more uh, there's going to be a better outcome but the application of the terror of the terrorist label means that the the state is able to create an ideological hegemony that accepts and condones basically the stripping of citizenship of a young girl. Yeah, I I, I think what Riz said is so um, true because if we see the connections between Windrush and um, citizen deprivation in terms of you know Shamima national security. We can highlight those discrepancies between, like, you know, liberal racism mm-hmm. and just plain out racism. Because I don't know, Riz, if you would agree with me, but what happened to you wouldn't be necessarily seen as racism, right? It's not you as a person per se, it's about the security reference object, which is Al Qaeda at the time, right? That it could apply to anybody, therefore it's not racist. It's operating according to that kind of one, that dominant fear that this is terrorism, this things are now justified. The emergency has been normalized to such an extent that anybody can be targeted. But also what happens is, is liberalism becomes complicit with this kind of state violence because liberals will oftentimes make the argument that look, you were picked up, you were held, you were investigated, and then you were released without charge, able to get on with your life as normal. What are you complaining about? This looks like a very appropriate argument until people start sharing their stories of the fact that they cannot get on with life as normal. And that's what I've done in my book, right? Is to say that, look, just because the the violence of the state was lawful does not mean that the harm that has emerged in my mind and amongst a very significant uh, number of academics, scholars, researchers, and students who I have spoken to through the years has not been profound. There is this intrinsic fear that has emerged in the academic community that accessing documents and materials will now lead to a potential coercive outcome for them. So there is the spreading of this fear, whether by design or default, this is inevitable, right? And what liberal arguments and ideologies do is they fail to account for the harm that emerges from the state. Because for liberalism as an ideology, the, the state has to exist in order for you to have rights. And without the existence of a state, we're in the words of Thomas Hobbes and Locke in a state of nature where there's anarchy. So in order to have order, we need to have a state. So the state is the prerequisite for freedom and rights to exist. And thus, if the state has to take away some of your rights, then that's okay because we need to have equality and order. So liberalism thus becomes complicit in 
uh, violence and uh, policies of the state and how it treats communities, especially those who are constructed as posing a danger to the very foundations of the nation state. And this is what makes the Muslim experience, I think, slightly unique. The epistemological foundations of the nation state, which emerged in 1643 with the Treaty of Westphalia in Europe, is essentially being challenged by Muslim groups to say, look, not only are we challenging your foreign policy, which is based on the systematic destruction of Muslim communities around the world, but actually we are challenging the very foundations of Western global hegemony, the very idea that states can only be organized according to the nation state model. So that threat then leaves the domain of violence and enters the domain of ideology. And thus, it's not just individuals involved in planning violence that are considered to pose a threat, but any Muslim who expresses that desire for Muslim autonomy, for Muslim liberation, they become a threat within themselves. And that's what we find in a lot of these policies and strategies that the state has, is that they are not targeting people for being in possession of written text, as opposed to bullets, bombs, and weapons. Um, This is a really good point to end on. Something that you said, Riz, which is really profound and something that we, I guess, aim to do in this special edition, which is to think about how violence can be legal and what happened to you in terms of the legacies of the war on terror. It was completely legal. And that's what we want to highlight, that violence can be legal, it can be lawful, and it has such severe damaging consequences. Yeah, and the damage is something that I've not mentioned, Shireen, at all, and and that's fine. But I document this in detail in the book, right, Mm -hmm. that the harm that emerges. So just because something, state violence is lawful, doesn't make it inherently right Mm -hmm. or morally correct. In fact, some of the greatest tyrannies in the world, all the way from slavery, colonialism, apartheid, holocaust, all of these were sanctified and legitimized through law. Mm. So law is not a question of what's morally right or wrong. It's a question of power and who has the power Mm. to make something lawful or unlawful, right? And I think that's something that's central uh, to this particular text that I've written and also how we think about uh, political violence and state violence more broadly and the harm that subsequently emerges from that. Riz, thank you so much. That was absolutely brilliant. So good. And pick up the book. It was probably one of the best. Pick up the book, listeners. Thank you so much, Riz. And we'll see you again next week, listeners. Bye. Thank you for listening to Legacies of the War on Terror. Guest executively produced by Shireen Fernandez. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.